You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. That was interesting. I, I think we covered a wide spectrum of uh, of creative endeavor there, and uh, like to thank uh, Pan should join us up here. Yeah, where'd Pan. Go? Yeah, where'd Pan go? We have a question you for her. We might. But uh, let's start. Do people have any um, questions of the um, of either of our artists? Uh, otherwise, I will uh, make some up. <laughs> In all seriousness. Well, all right, let me begin the discussion. I, I have a question for Howard. What makes it science fiction poetry other than you sell to a science fiction magazine? <laughs> Why is there. <laughs> no, it's a. It's Every one of those pieces deals specifically with either a science fictional trope or a fantasy trope. So I would argue that that is what contributes to making it science fiction poetry. Now, I don't think science fiction poetry is, well, there's the old saying, uh, art is what you find in an art museum. Uh, and I don't think that, that uh, uh, poetry that deals with, say, astronomy, Sarah Williams is whom I'm thinking of particularly right now. Um, she does some wonderful things. And uh, they were never published as science fiction <laughs> poetry. Uh, I would say that they do verge on that because they have such an emphasis on uh, the scientific method, scientific process, intellectual history of science. And that's what I think makes them science fiction poetry. But in my own case, I just can't get away from uh, trying to combine the sort of more literary emphases and the talk about the sciences and talk about the stars. I and mean, we all talk about the stars. I mean, uh, I was listening to, uh, the, it was called Walking the Stars, was that the, the name? Yeah. Of the, yeah. And, and I thought, uh, th this is something human beings have done for a long time. That's I just actual seminal mythology. Right. About the Milky Way? The yeah, the Milky Way. I, I didn't make that up. <laughs> and, and for me, uh, that's not science fiction poetry per se. Or, or, but, but one of the things I try to tell my students whenever I teach myth is m a myth is an explanatory mm -hmm. system. Mm -hmm. And explanatory systems are all different kinds. I mean, you can have, you have folkloric and mythic systems all over the world. And science is just another myth in that sense. It's an explanatory system. And uh, so I think it's, it makes perfect sense that we, we look out at, the, at, out at the stars and try to figure out what the heck's going on. Uh, you know, what do they mean? Why are we here? And that's what I'm trying to do with my, my poetry. I just intend to focus on what I think is more... Uh, strongly based in a, a scientific worldview per se, but it's an old it's an old trick and we've all been messing with it for a long time. And when I hear stories about, you know, explaining uh, the Milky Way, all of the, the wonderful origin myths, mm -hmm. that is the, the same thing. We're, we're all just trying to, to make some sense of it. I, I happen to be coming from a scientific worldview. All right, that makes sense. Well, in terms of myth, what interested me about the, uh, your piece was it seemed like the the myth came after 
it was in the later chapter where you're talking about the crossroads and the hoodoo and all that kind of stuff. Is that, was that just a random thing or is that the structure of the novel itself? No, we start the story with the hoodoo and, and myths. So it's all there, but I just, I just tell that story later in the book. But it's right from the beginning. We're in the hoodoo worldview. Mm -hmm. and now, the, the crroads, as I understand, I mean, the, the, the one you hear about is, of course, Robert, Robert Johnson, Johnson. Yes, and yes. the devil. Selling the soul. Yes. So you're but selling your soul. Is, that the, uh, is there more to the crossroads myth? Oh, than yeah. No, oh, yeah. Uh, you know, I would even say that, a, yeah, you know, unfortunately, I, um, you know, when I think about um, either my family or the research I've done, the whole Robert Johnson story is, the, you know, not the typical story. So um, the... Devil is the wrong term, you know. It didn't meet the devil. Um, it's more uh, the 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 what I call the boneyard baron, right? Um, or Baron Samdi, if you're into Haitian voodoo. Mm -hmm. um, so it's really you know Eshu, if you're into West African, um, you know uh, Yoruba tradition. So it's a figure. Uh, Eshu is a Yoruba de deity of the crossroads, and all of these figures are versions of Eshu, pretty much, in the New World. Um, and Eshu is, you know, life and death choice. Crossroads, um, uh. the, the master of uncertainty. Um, like, who can I be? And if you have to be someone new, you have to die and become the new person. So it's, it's death and rebirth. Um, and this figure gets conflated with the devil when Christians, you know, come upon Eshu or, or you know, visual representations of Eshu, which are multiple and it's huge. Um, they confuse who, the, you know, the, you know, oh, well, Eshu became a character in Christian mythology instead of, a, you know, being in his own mythology. Um, and also, you know, Christianity wasn't really fond of this particular set of traditions, so it was pejorative. So devil becomes the figure because there is no devil in most uh, n no there's no devil in west african religions that i know other than christianity um so i don't think there's a devil in any other than christianity yeah you know so i mean so good and evil are not divided in the same way in the sort of you know um like sort of manichaean way there's only good and evil eschews everything right so it's the you know it's how when you come to the crossroads you want to know as much about eschew as possible so that you can make a good decision um, and that is to know everything that works and doesn't work. So, you know, you don't divide it up in good and evil. You divide it up in like, okay, these are things that could work for me and I can manifest myself in this way and I want to know it. Because there are all these wonderful stories about the Baron or about Eshu, about being tricked. Because it, it, this is a trickster figure. You think it's this, but it's actually something else. So the whole point of the crossroads is to have clear vision and to be able to see through the tricks. So Eshu is there to test you, but you know, not necessarily to lead you astray as the devil might, but to test you to see if you have clear vision. And if you don't, then you, you know, then you do the stupid thing. You're in big <laughs> you know, trouble. And you're in trouble. <laughs> um, and so if you go to the crossroads to meet the Baron or to meet Eshu, then it's to see, can you manifest yourself and perceive what you need to perceive and then and do what you want to do. So you really want to have your mojo work and you really want to have all of your props, all of your wisdom, all of your spirit intact so that you can achieve this. So it's not so much getting through the devil, but getting through, you know, all the morass of reality that could confuse you and distract you and destroy you. Well, and, and there is a, a Western tradition of a goddess of the cross, crossroads, too. Um, 
Ate becomes Hecate becomes associated with, with associated with witchcraft, etc., cetera, yes. etc. Cetera. But yes. uh, it's a it's an idea found all over the planet. And I've always thought that the Sphinx who confronts Odysseus mm. is a form of Ate. She is asked. She's a tester. The she's tester, a tester. Right. Right. And uh, that's a very powerful idea. But we have we have uh, the, the, after the advent of uh, uh, Christianization of Europe, the whole notion of the crossroads was made literally trivial right. because it was the trivia, it was the place of the three roads meeting. And uh, that, is, that has been sort of pushed aside and that's trivia, that's not, rea that's not important, but right. I, I think it still is. Superstition. Superstition. Yeah. yeah. As, yeah opposed superstition. To, as opposed to a Wisdom. that helps you <coughs> to live in a full and potent and powerful way. And yes. To, uh, use your imagination to create right. your own reality and to, right. you know. Oh, but that was associated with the old gods, and so we yeah. must get rid of it. And okay. that's the same thing when you well, get the, oh. They're still all here, though. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, right. Yes. Well, and, and, you know, for the Yoruba, I'll just use them because I know them the best. Mm -hmm. These aren't gods, right? The Orisha are not gods. Well, they're, right. they're manifestations of the, you know, of Ashe, of the power to make things be. So they are, you know, the, you know, the creative principles of the universe. So they're not gods, you know, I mean, in the sense of Western gods, but they are honored because you honor the creative principles of the universe, you know, so if you want to get anything done, right? <laughs> so, so therefore, the, the, the idea of worship is to have those gods ride you because you want the creative principles of the universe to inhabit you so that you can get what you want done. So, and that's what, a, you know, being ridden by the Orisha, Orisha mean you call down the power of the spirits in order to manifest yourself in the world. And I'm doing all this stuff because there are dance moves that go with the, you know, it's a performative, um, you know, spiritual practice. So it's and, amazing. And something we've lost in the Western tradition was the whole notion of a muse that literally inhabits the yeah. poet. Yeah. Okay. That's, that, yeah. It's been so lost. It's like, oh, well, yes, uh, we, but the muse becomes sort of a joke. But to have as vital an understanding as to be ridden by the muse, that would be cool. Mm -hmm. That would be really neat. We can do that. Everybody has that ability. It'd be cool, or, or it'd be terrifying. <laughs> you know, it could be well, way, right? sometimes what is cool is terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you got to take risks to do yeah. something cool, yeah. <laughs> or to write something well, beautiful. It, it seems like one difficulty talking about the Milky Way is, of course, Milky Way is now invisible to most of the yes. world. Yes. It, it, it really. That's I was yeah. amazed. I was 25 years old the first time I actually saw it. You yeah. know, you don't yeah. see it anymore. The no. the the from. Uh, You've all seen that wonderful image of, of Earth from near space, the night side of Earth with everything lit up. Yeah. The only downside of that is that uh, for more and more of, the, uh, more and more of the human population on this planet, the night sky, the deep night sky is invisible. Yeah. Although you can still find it, it's really easy. You just get in a boat and go far enough so that the curvature of the Earth blocks out the light, ambient light from cities. And you can still do that. One yeah. of the reasons why I live where I live and it, you know, I, I live way up in the mountains, and some people say, see, he lives in a cave. He's a, a Luddite. Okay, no. <laughs> I, I live up there because I can see them on a, a clear, moonless night. I can see the band of the Milky Way. That's one of the main reasons I live up there because I'm a, I'm a lunatic romantic. Well, you yeah. can actually see it from up in the Sierras, and it's yeah. very bright. Yeah, yeah. I saw it really in Wyoming, cool. too. Yeah. Yep. It's yeah. not just a ghostly whiff. No, yes. no, no. It's a... Ooh. Yeah, it's <laughs> scary. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. Awe, it's awe inspiring. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, we all make a nod to Isaac Asimov, okay, who wrote a wonderful story. What? Oh, well, the 
Night, what was this? What was the Nightfall. 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 Yeah, right. and but we've we've generated. It's it's such a trade-off. Uh, we have you know we have the wonders of cities that are 24 hours that light everywhere. Um, but we something much gained, but something is also lost. The, the sense of the deeper universe gets lost. Yeah. Or our connection to it. Yeah. 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 So. Oh, there's a hand back there. There's a hand. Yeah. 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 Ye
right? In the middle of all of that, you could also show a little film because it was more like a sideshow event initially. And, um, and then I looked at, you know, classic films like Melies or, you know, films that we still have. Um, I looked at uh, Squaw Man, uh, which was the first film shot in Hollywood. It was done by uh, Cecil B. DeMille. Um, he used a real Indian as the uh, squaw, um, whose name was Lillian St. Cyr, C-Y-R. And she was beloved because she died a lot. You know, she would sacrifice herself for white guys. She became a star, right? She yeah, was a she star. Did. She was a yeah. huge star because she died. I mean, and and, and they, the reviews of her were, oh, she just sacrifices herself so well. And in Squaw Man, um, she uh, commits suicide so that her uh, husband can take their mixed-race son to England and be a baron or something there and have all the white privilege he can, you know, possibly deal with. Um, and she died so well. Um, and she and her husband, though, made their own films. Um, she was married to um, uh, a, a Ho-Chunk, a Winnebago um, man, and they made their own films. So they, they would do Cecil B. DeMille's films and make money. Um, and, and her husband directed and, and also did his, you know, acting. And she did all of her own stunts, like, you know, riding her horses and jumping off of them and doing all this stuff. Um, and then when they made their films, they did not make the sort of suicidal woman, you know, married to the white guy story. They, they might have a mixed race couple, but they just lived happily, you know, in the village with the other native people. There was no drama of interracial, you know, catastrophe. <laughs> it was just like, hey, babe, I love you. Okay, let's just have a teepee here. Okay, fine, good. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, and they were, they were, they did Plains Indian stories. Um, there were also, you know, most of, you know, we have the Plains Indians as the Indians, um, you know. And so the, the uh, East, Eastern Indians are not, they don't, like, live in teepees or, but they have, you know, they had villages, city life. They had, like, you know, for, you know, democracy. <laughs> and they, yeah. you know, it's just. Federation. Yeah, they yeah. had a federation um, or the, you know, the five civilized tribes in the South. I mean, so, so they're, you know, they were always complaining about this isn't us, you know. So I would read, I would like, I would read the, the, what people were saying at like meetings. So we, let's get all the Indians together and they'll talk. <laughs> and I would read the transcript of those discussions. Um, so I got to, you know, I read uh, letters between um, Zitkalasa, who was a Native American woman who wrote stories and did, you know, operas and stuff, and she wrote to, um, I can't think of the, the, his name right now, but he was a major figure, and they had a really amazing correspondence, so I could read what they were mad about, what they were happy about, what was going on. So I had to use indirect things. I read African-American um, uh, diaries. I read all the, you know, The Conjure Woman again. I looked at um, plays that were written at the time, and they referred to occasionally a film that someone had made that is now lost, <laughs> in which none of the stupid stuff is going on. They actually made the movie they wanted, and I'm like, oh, uh, and it's just like two or three lines, and then I try to follow that up, and it evaporates. Um, so to answer your long answer, I took all of this and said, <laughs> okay, I'm just going to imagine like a composite of all of these people that I've now read about and they, and I'll take the two lines and that you know they made their own movies and I'll make my story from that um, and I'll use my great uh, my grandparents um, as references for the kind of people that I want to write about so that's what I did works for me yeah <laughs> <laughs> so so what it's funny I was having a discussion with Cory Doctorow recently. We were talking about 
one of the differences between, one of the distinguishing characteristics we both felt about science fiction was that it has an agenda, whether recognized or not. Not a, it's not the only literature mm -hmm. that does, but it is one that that does. I mean, is your agenda about? I mean, it seems it has a lot to do with with kind of um, rehabilitating myth, kind of cleaning up. Um, well, you know, I think empire, the whole idea of, you know, local wisdom is often destroyed by empire. And so what, you know, it's like what you were saying about what do we lose? Because yeah. your story, to me, seemed very much like my story, except just at different time frames. Um, so, I, you know, like all of the stuff, what do we lose as we reach for the stars? Yeah. I think that's what's, you know, like I saw your elevator and I, you know, I, I was like, oh, God, the workers are still being like yeah. You know, on the elevator to the stars, we're still like, you know, not paying them well and not telling them what's up and giving them toxic situations to be in. Um, so, you know, I feel that that is, you know, as I'm trying to think about speculating on the past, it's also not to forget how long we've been working to change those things and to, you know, resist what I would call empire, you know, uh, the negative aspects of empire. I'm, I'm not sure that, you know, some people argue that there are positive ones, so I'll, you know, I'll go on faith that maybe they have something right about that, but I haven't seen <laughs> or experienced, you know, what I would consider positive aspects of empire. And we're still in an age of empire, you know. Um, and so my agenda is to, um, you know, not give in to that. But I, I don't think, Terry, that you can just, as you rightly said, all art has an agenda, yeah. okay, all of it does. And it can be uh, more obvious or less obvious. You know, it, in, the, in the New Yorker, this, the agenda is psychological realism is what counts, okay? Uh, hmm. And it may not, not be either psychological or realistic, but that doesn't matter. Yeah, but okay. realism is just what we're willing to believe. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the Squaw Man thing that I just told you was viewed as realist. Uh, the mm -hmm. documentary that I told you about is so realism to me is the set of things that we uh, will accept. Um, so, you know, I would totally argue with the New Yorker, you know, about what that is. It's just, you know, it's not real at all. It's what we're willing to believe at the moment. Yeah, or, or is consensus enough that, yes. that, that, right. that people can and deal with it. I think one of, the, one of the challenges, though, that we always have as artists is to try to uh, represent, you see, there was a wonderful uh, Russian formalist thinker named Bakhtin who argued that the fundamental difference between novels and poetry, one of the many, is that novels are polyvocal. They contain a lot of different voices. And one of the great things about novels is to try to uh, capture that diversity of opinions within mm -hmm. your, your own little narrow head. And I, I have tried that, and I, I don't always succeed. I've been, I'm teaching a book called The Remains of the Day to my class mm -hmm. on Tuesday. I'm finishing it up. Mm -hmm. And the one thing I really love, it's by Kazuo Ishiguro. It was made into a film with Emma Thompson and Anthony Hopkins. One of the things I love about that book is it has just the most wonderful, unreliable narrator. I just love unreliable narrators. Mm -hmm. I can never pull one off myself, although I'm messing with it in this book. I'm trying. Mm -hmm. But... What's so great about that narrator is that he's, he's un guy, right? yeah, that's yeah. the butler. Yeah. What's so great about it is he's unreliable because he doesn't understand himself. His mm -hmm. very unreliability comes from his own personal blindness, and to capture that in a novel is just great. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, that's uh, one of the things that appeals to me about and where art and politics ultimately uh, 
uh, park company uh, is that we, we have to give everybody their due. Um, the, y y and to try to simultaneously speak truth to power mm -hmm. no. and uh, yeah, make a model of one's mind and share it is really a challenge. Yeah. It's kind it's of a crazy job. Having a devil is really not productive. <laughs> you, know, you know, so it's, no. you know, okay, evil, oh, yuck, bad, okay. But really to try to get at the complexity, I think, of, you know, our lives, that's what artists are, are struggling to do. You know, yeah. whether we do it successfully or not, that's another thing. But I think that's what a lot of us are really working toward. And that polyvocal thing is, to me, like, I'm a theater person, so, you know, um, often... Um, you know, there isn't a point of view character, right? In a, in a play, you have all each each character has to have their voice. And James Baldwin said, "No man is an enemy to himself." You know, no man is evil. So you know, if you you know write a, a, you know what I call the sort of buzz cut colonel character that you've probably seen in Avatar, where you know you're just like, <laughs> okay, you know, we're I'm bad and I do bad things and I'm represent I'm so bad that you all are going to be happy when I'm shot and none of you are responsible for anything else. You know, like you are not complicit in anything I do because I'm bad. You know, and then I have a buzz cut too, so you can tell I'm bad by like my. Let us my not mention tall people living in Pac Pakistan lately. Right. Exactly. Uh, you know, so you can tell I'm bad by my costume, you, you know, the surface of me is all there is, you know, I, I'm a devil, um, you know, yeah. and I think that, you know, re like the complexity of the, you know, the unreliable narrator, you know, speaks to all of us because that's who we are, yeah. you know, we are, you know, in our own lives, we're it's our, like, we're our own unreliable yeah, like, you know, I, <laughs> yeah, lying to ourselves all the all time, all the time, and it's really good to come up against that and say, oh, whoa, and that's a hard thing to do, you know, it's very hard. Interesting. Well, just in terms of literary criticism, I'd have to disagree, because uh, I mean, Howard saying about the the novel being a multiplicity uh, multiple narratives. Uh, the novel started with you know, look at uh, Richardson with Clarissa yeah. and Pamela. Pamela. Look at, uh, I mean, Jane Austen is the er reliable narrator, and there's one narrator, you know. Sure. But it's true that a lot of a lot of novels do rely on the. Uh, you know, Huck but Finn was an unreliable narrator because well, he doesn't. It, but anyway, but, but, but okay. Let, let's talk about Jane Austen. Let's talk about Pride and Prejudice for just a minute. Okay, let, let's talk about that because uh, you know Elizabeth Bennet. Have I taught this recently? Yes. Uh, Elizabeth Bennet uh, is is unreliable yeah. in that she doesn't know what she's about. The title oh, of the book right. was First Impressions, yeah, man. And, so, and, and, and she doesn't, she does. By the time we get to the end, she you're does right. know, and it's through her experiences. Right. And by, she, by, polyvo by polyvocal, I don't mean that you, you have can't 12, have one thousand, narrator. Right, you yeah. don't have, a, right. have to have a, a, a bunch of different narrators, no. but that the book has to try to fully, or at least in an important way, encapsulate this multiplicity of viewpoints. Right, Whereas the a, irony, uh, you know, is, where many writers live. And irony means that there are many ways to see what is being said. And the reader might see, you know, like, you know, totally differently than Elizabeth Bennett, what's going on. And that is really, again, complex. Yeah. All right. So I don't have a fucking PhD, okay? <laughs> I have a right to have an opinion, all right? No, but you guys are, you're right. And we love right. you for it, Terry. No, but you're absolutely right. That's the the... The enjoy. I mean, somehow at this science fiction thing, we always end up talking about Jane Austen. I don't get it. <laughs> no, but anyway, I wanted to ask uh, Pan. Are we leaving you out of this? No, no, I'm having fun listening. Okay, all right, all right, all right.
So, um, but, oh, by the way, just to make a musical note, you do all know, since we already mentioned Robert Johnson, that this is the 100th anniversary of his birthday. Oh, it is. Yeah. It is. This is the 100th anniversary oh, of Robert cool. Johnson's today? birthday. Today? It is today. today. Oh, May yeah. 8th, 1911, Woo. Robert Johnson yeah, was born. Yeah. That's a, yeah, I heard that on the radio. On this well, you should have yeah. been. Yeah. Yeah. I totally yeah. forgot. Yeah, that's wow. so cool. Yes, wow. that was a, when, as soon as as soon as Robert Johnson comes up, I go, oh wow, hey, yeah. wow. yes, All his right. ghost is among us. You had a question? No, I was just raising a toast, Robert Johnson. Yeah, Robert Johnson, the crossroads. Yeah, terraplane. All right. Uh, Terraplane, which was the original version of a uh, uh, Little Deuce Coupe, I think. The yeah. car, first the car, car worship song. song. Okay, any other questions or comments? Because we actually yeah, have more to a say. In the, uh, no, this guy here in the red shirt, he's, yes. I like him. Well, he's got a red shirt. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Good question. Wow. Go ahead, Andrea. You can shoot that one first. Um, well, I'm, I'm a theater person, so um, what really helps me is to have been in plays. <laughs> and so I would, um, to have done art, to have created things with people, to have told stories with people has really helped me as a writer. So, you know, trying to get that irony polyvocal thing that we were talking about, um, it really helps to work with a performer to um, be able to sit in the back of an audience and listen to them respond to a play, to go to live art, to, you know, yeah, to, on whatever level, like being in the play or watching the play or writing the play or, you know, all of that really helped me um, have a really much deeper understanding. I mean, and every, there are many ways to this. So I'm not saying it's the only thing at all, but it really helped me to be able to tell stories. Um, you know, I, I come from a theater background, too, for my <laughs> sins, which is wonderful for trying to help you appreciate dialogue oh, um, uh -huh. in a huge way. Mm. But I think the most important thing to my writing process is something I don't have enough of right now, which is time. Time. Time is the, the key thing. And the time in a lot of ways, you know, I, I, I teach an occasional creative writing co course, and I say this obnoxious thing, which is all you really need to write is to, to be a good writer, is to read a lot and to write a lot. The hard part's not the reading, right? The hard part's a lot, and that takes time. And mm -hmm. I, I, I like to tell my students that you read a lot to see how others have used the language, to familiarize yourself with the possibilities of voice in there. And you write a lot to develop your own voice, your own way of speaking, your own way of communicating. And, but all of those take time. Uh, and it, when it, when, as, I'm sorry I'm going to say this, but the, as soon as you asked your question, I remember that William Faulkner was asked the same question. He said, what did he need to write? And he said, bourbon, but scotch will do in a pinch. <laughs> I was going to make a joke and say a bottle of whiskey. But <laughs> really Faulkner did say that. Yes, yeah. Faulkner did say that. But it's got it's to be more than that. If all you ever do is drink and never sit down and write, you're just a drunk. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas, yeah. if you write, you're a drunken writer. There you go. Yeah. That's a that's a terrible answer. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like um, to say something about yes, that. Yes, yeah. yeah. Because I write too. Speak in the 
Ah. Yeah. I think one of the most um, helpful things that I've found when writing fiction, which I also write or songs, is to let myself play. You know, so like if I find myself stuck, I get off the chair or out away from the desk and I Good move. Point. Like maybe I'll even put on some music and dance. And while I'm moving, I'm embodying my imagination. Mm -hmm. I'm really living in my body, not just in my head. And when you do that, things, answers will come to you. Like if you get stuck in a story, that's what I've found, I, go take a walk or go play basketball or dance or something. And answers will come to you because there's more to thinking and writing than being just in the head. And the other thing that I've found that's helpful is to um, once again, let yourself play, which I just said, but meaning um, there uh, to sometimes just let yourself write any old stuff and don't judge harshly. Mm -hmm. Just play. Yeah, every every time you write, it's like a rehearsal. This everything you she just said is stuff you do for being in theater, <laughs> like yeah. so that you 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 know you have you know follow your impulse and yeah. don't you know don't censor it. It's a rehearsal, so tomorrow you'll follow it again, and eventually you'll block the show. <laughs> Shoot your inner editor, but yeah. then bring him or her back or, to life. Or, no, give them a nice cup of tea yeah, and, and say, go, go, go to the other room go and drink. Because <laughs> there's really two processes. One is generating, and one is editing and crafting. Mm -hmm. yeah. Or there's a, there's a wonderful old myth that uh, bears were born. No, bears, there you go, yeah. Terry. We're back there again. Uh, that bears were born unformed, and that their mothers had to lick them into shape. And I, I think of writing as being like that, any sort yeah. of artistic endeavor. Uh, it's born, but it's not formed. And the, 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 the bearing of it, the bringing of it into this world, that's the generative part. The licking into shape, that's the editing, that's applying the craft to it in a really hard sense. But you've got to get it out in the world first, okay, out there so you can work on it. That's real hairy. Yeah. Smack. <laughs> we had a question. Love about your voice. Love your voice, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yes, please. I was just wondering if um, this book you're struggling with now that you read the first chapter, yeah. is, this a, is this something that happens in every book, or are you trying to do something different, or...? Well, no, this comes back, yeah, I am doing something different, but it, it, part of a big chunk of it, it what, what is part of the problem is uh, my wife and I build a house. That may seem to have nothing to do with what I'm getting at, but we, we, we took on debt, and that meant that uh, now I am doing a lot more teaching and that has restricted the amount of time. And that makes for a handy excuse because ultimately, though, you, you never find time. You have to make yeah. it. And I really, I, I need to just, this summer I'm going to finish the damn book or it's going to finish me. All right. <laughs> Done. We heard uh, him, right? Yeah, you heard we him. We've got to hold it. his feet to the fire. Yeah, yeah, I have yeah. a question about that book because it's, it's interesting to me that one of the, one of the most vivid uh, and ancient tropes in science fiction that I sort of remember is the person suspended animation waking up, the ship is empty and cold and they find a note. I mean, <laughs> I mean, how, I, it yes. was very conscious you started yep. with that, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I want, but I want to, I'm trying to tear that apart because, or just redo it because I didn't want to write, I love post-apocalypse books, don't get me wrong, but I, I've been struggling with this one because I want it to be uh, something that whether it's an apocalypse or not and what sense an apocalypse it is uh, is debatable because years and years and years and years ago my doctoral dissertation as I mentioned before it's called the ecstasy of catastrophe blah blah blah, blah. Um, and one of the things that appealed that fascinates me 
about the origin of the word apocalypse, which is from the Greek apokalyptein, which means it has two meanings. One of them is to lift the veil of this world to see into truth, okay, to see something more. Uh, and the other is a rending of the veil of this world, a massive destruction. And I'm working on a book that I, I want both of those to be true. And you know, it's, it's been a challenge. It's been a challenge, but, uh, and as anyone, if you're at Potlatch, I was on the Book of Honor panel, and I, I love post-apocalyptic stuff. It's fascinating to me. Um, and, but, I, but I've always also realized that there's a huge element of wish fulfillment in it. One of the first stories I ever published back in the early 1980s was uh, called In the Smoke, and it's a post-apocalyptic. And, you know, post-apocalyptic stories, are always told from the point of view who are of people who are lucky enough to not be the dead, okay, <laughs> to not be the dead. And so in answer to your, your point, Terry, uh, I wanted to told, take apart that whole sort of too easy, ah, the last person on earth. Damn, that's not a good place to be. It, it, we, we, we tend to think of it, oh, this is so wonderful, but th that phrase that keeps coming up into, into my mind, uh, the living will envy the dead. And I thought, what does that phrase really mean, the living will envy the dead? Um, and so I wanted to mess with a character who has to confront that in a, in a really deep way. And, and you want us to read this? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well. I'm sure there will be car chases and boat explosions someplace. Uh, well, maybe not. Uh, hmm. But right. I just – I. I feel that it's it's something that we've all got a giant rock hanging over our heads, and we ne we never pay attention to it. Uh, as a species, I think we have tried not to pay attention to the how. Well, a friend of mine once said, you know, human beings are metaphysically fucked up. Mm -hmm. I thought, you know, there's a truth to that, um, and I I just want to get at that. How are we screwed up uh, in terms of the metaphysics? And so that's why I'm writing this book. It's a, is it a, is it different? Yeah, it's different than my other stuff, but. I've always been, it, my, re, my recurrent obsessions don't go away. Mm -mm. Um, they never do, they just grow new tentacles. So All there right. you go. <laughs> yeah. Well, we haven't got a whole lot of time, but I would, uh, there's a question I wanna ask Andrea, but do anybody else have anything intelligent to say or add to this? Uh, Dennis. Can't hear you. And Eshu. Yeah. She has a house Eshu. Yeah, so I'm wondering, can you say something about that? Do you want to sort of do a parallel to what she's doing? Is it, is it different? Uh, I, I think we're in the same uh, world. Um, I, I teach West African culture and theater and, <laughs> and the Caribbean culture, so that's my, and I've done uh, theater like that um, forever. <laughs> so I'm, you know, one of my major um, inspirations as a young playwright was Wolof Shoyinka, who is a Nigerian playwright. Derek Walcott is another one. When I was, you know, developing my sensibility as a as a writer, um, so I come right out of you know the same. I mean, and Derek Walcott was like a friend of her father's, <laughs> so it's like a very similar set of of you know 
I would say Im, Im, impulses and influences, you know, so, and I think, you know, in many of her books she uses Caribbean culture um, that has a West African um, connection. So I think we're definitely in the same world and I'm, yeah, we're like, and we're good friends. <laughs> Um, spiritual and significant. Like the image we had of the stone patches filming the scene. Yeah. Right, as a witness, because, yeah. yeah. Um, well, you know, because you know, there are many people who think, like, technology is evil, you know. Or that even, like, when you said Luddite, you know, Luddites were, they just wanted, not necessarily, they weren't necessarily anti-technology, no. you know. It was more about, they like... They wanted a job. <laughs> yeah, yeah, could yeah, I, could yeah, I tell a Luddite story yeah. real quickly? Yeah, sure. Well, okay, uh, the Luddites did, were not opposed to technology per yeah. se. They were only opposed to technology that impacted their commonweal, their way of life. One of my favorite stories about the Luddites involves a, you can look this up, you can Google it, okay? Uh, Enoch Taylor of Marsden. Enoch Taylor was someone who, and he was in the north of England, who had uh, helped make some of the mechanical looms that were putting these workers out of business, okay? And when the rioting started in the second decade, in a big way, in the second decade of the 19th century, um, Enoch Taylor, curiously enough, I don't know if he had a change of heart or just spotted a new market niche, he started making these enormous hammers, okay? Big hammers. <laughs> and there were Luddites who marched into textile mills who chanted, Enoch made them, Enoch will break them. And I think that's so cool, right? Mm -hmm. But they had no problem with the technology of these really huge hammers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they were concerned about technology that right. impacted their way of life. Right. Yeah. Well, and also, you know, so, so to me that, you know. Technology made obsolete. Uh, yes. well, well, also, um, yes. like, I think technology is a tool. So, and, and we have, like, starting with a stick, you know, we've, that's who we are. We're, like, tool makers. Mm -hmm. So to be anti-technology would be to be anti-human nature. So, uh, you know, it's just, so therefore the question uh, is, yeah, yeah, you know. So, What's appropriate? So how, how do we then have a value system in which people are at the center of the value system? That's my question, not whether or not we have technology or, you know, so profit at the center of our value system is, you know, leads to, you know, the apocalypse. <laughs> so I want to reshape that, not necessarily get rid of technology. Um, so because, you know, I mean, hey, I like my leather jacket that, you know, with a zipper. I mean, you know, really, I mean. That's an animal skin. I know. Huh. It's an animal skin with a zipper. Um, oh. Right? How very handy. Right? Do you see what I'm saying? It came that way. just an animal skin. <laughs> so I, I really think that to me, um, we've got to, and I think Nalo does this in, in um, uh, Midnight Robber and, and several of her stories, and I do it in Mindscape. It's not technology that is evil. I mean, there, there could be things, ideology can go into your technology. I'm not saying that doesn't happen, but I think what we need to do is restructure our society where we have certain kinds of values at the center, and those are not at the center. And that's why those people took those hammers and, you know, beat the crap out of the, Machine. out of the, the machines. And the machines, you know, we have so many, like, evil robot movies or evil monster, you know, it's, I, I go, oh, okay, you know, but I really want to know whose idea was it? <laughs> <laughs> and how how do we value ourselves in an, in an another way? That's what I want to work on for you know my f thinking in terms of the future. How can we get different values at the center of our society? So that's what my book is about. So it's not you know so film therefore can be right in with the spirits you know because sh she will have a record a witness on film. <laughs> you know, so and there's no problem with that. You know it's not like. Um, 
somehow that ruins her authentic natural reality. No, I mean, we are by nature toolmakers. Yeah. So it's part of that. Cool. And you could argue that culture is the ultimate tool. Yeah, cu culture is a tool. Language is a tool. tool yeah. You know, so, mm, yeah. Did you said you had a question for me? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. There's another question. Yeah, please. Back. Um, hmm. I, I have a complex answer. I think a lot of people um, aren't clear about empire. So um, when I talk to them about it, it comes clear to them. And they have you know, a range of responses, but they're you know, kind of like shocked because they haven't thought in those terms. So I think the ideological control is such that we're not aware of the extent of empire and what it has done to all levels of humanity and the, the planet. Um, so, um, so when I, you know, when I w talk with people and exchange with them and you know respect them, you know, then I can, we can have a discussion, and I, I don't feel alone at all. They, they like add to, to my understanding of empire because they go, oh, I know this and this and this and this, and and I, so I feel connected. But then I, you know, uh, you know, in in terms of. Um, other times I feel like no one's noticing, no one's paying attention, and they're not speaking about it, or, you know, it's old-fashioned, you know, like I'm a 60s, like, throwback, <laughs> um, something. So I, I have both of those experiences. Um, but I don't meet as many people as I would like who articulate um, a notion that, you know, we have to work with, you know, somehow resisting what I would call What do empire. you mean by empire? Like a homogenizing force or a um, authoritarian I, force or what? Well, no, but I think, you know, the, the core principles of our society are still those <coughs> of the empires that, you know, uh, started to take over the planet, you know, uh, around the time of Shakespeare. <laughs> you know, so and that's in our literature, in our e economics, in our politics and all of that. So I think that, you know, we have, a, you know, sort of an illusionary um, coding over it that, you know, for instance, if I talk about Native American stuff, people are really sad about what happened to them, but think it's stopped or that it's not ongoing, or that, you know, now that we feel positively about, say, Native Americans, that we've actually dismantled that whole practice that resulted in genocide, and we haven't. So we just now think, oh, that was really bad. I mean, I, I'm being facetious here. But, you know, that is an ongoing process, and those values are still, um, you know, with us, they are living values. They are not the values of our ancestors, and now we're beyond them. They are ongoing, and they uh, determine choices that we make right now, today, and not no longer about Native Americans, but about all of us. So the th you know the genocidal practices that we had, you know, and I say we, I'm not saying they, we had um, continue, and you know, and and again, they're 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 destroying us, you know. So I mean. And I, f I feel an urgency about that. Uh, and there's a pivotal science fiction work that was consciously anti-imperialist. It's 
H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. War of the Worlds. And where so, he basically yes. said, you know, well, what if we had Martians do to us what we're doing to folks all yeah. over the rest of the planet? A lot of science fiction is about that. Yeah. I mean, it's not just Wells, but Wells is, you know. And I, I, Andrea, what Andrea said about going back at least to the time of Shakespeare is true because you could argue that Ireland is the first yep. British overseas uh -huh. colony. Yep. Are you? I mean, it's a fact. Argue. Thank you. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> right, right. Just and the, it up. It's a fact. Yeah. And the practices that, that you do in Ireland, then you try somewhere else. Yeah. You know, right. so. And yeah, so Scotland. I mean, so yeah. Rhea. Want me to take that one? Yeah, too? why don't you go first? Well, <laughs> there was this scary German philosopher named Schopenhauer yeah. who yeah. basically said that what really underlies everything is the will. Okay, and that if you if we once got away from our perceptual limits, we would see nothing but a, a vast history of will and desire and just the, the the endless blood slaughter of history. And not even on my worst days of that am I that glum. Uh, I I I do I I realize that we are screwed up, all right, but I don't think we're irreparably screwed up. And so my point is just to try to understand myself, other people, mm -hmm. and try to have something that is different from that Schopenhauer vision of, you know, if we ever once took off the blinders, we'd see just this hideous, bloody, nasty, nasty thing. Yeah. And you know, I, and I think there were a couple of writers that were really sort of affected by Schopenhauer. Not only Thomas Hardy, but uh, I think that H.P. Lovecraft. Has a he's got this real Schopenhauerian vision of the universe, ultimately the Elder Ones and Cthulhu and all this this darkness out there, and I'm like, yeah, okay, but oh, the darkness is there, but do we just say that's fine? That's what we, we should just give into it. We should just yield to it. I just can't do that. So I want to get at what it is in me that is metaphysically screwed up, and boy, there's a that's a rich vein to mine. I'll tell you. <laughs> Um, and that's that's what I, I try to start with, and that's sure. where my analysis of <laughs> Empire starts is with me. Yeah, I, I'm very much persuaded by the um, uh, biologist Lynn Margulis, yeah. who wrote a book called The Symbiotic Planet. Yeah. And so, uh, and I'm very much persuaded by her notion that you know, I mean, there, you know, life is incredible, you know, um, and one of the incredible things is how much you know, life is about cooperation. Right. Um, so, you know, <laughs> if you think of the mitochondria who are in all the cells, they're really successful, and they cooperate, or the chloroplasts, another cooperative group, or bacteria, whoo! <laughs> you know, so, and I, I was at somebody talking about um, killing off all the bacteria at some point, you know, just so, and I was like, this, we are bacteria, you mm -hmm. know? Um, so I think I'm really working, and, and in my first book, Mindscape, I use symbiogenesis as one of my, my images. Um, so I'm really trying to figure out how we can, given our tendencies to greed and to, like, you know, destroy the commons and to, you know, because I don't think those are false. I just think they're in, you know, they're there along with other tendencies. And I would like the other tendencies to have a little more <laughs> like uh, get over the hump because the cooperative, you know, the social anything survives better, right? Social insects, so you know, human beings until a certain point, you know, then like, and I don't think empire it serves us the way, you know, thing other uh, tendencies serve us. So I want to make that available, you know. In other words, that notion available because I think we have the sort of, you know. Um, 
you know, what is self-interest, right? And to me, self-interest, you know, from the mitochondria's point of view, is to be cooperative, right? Whereas we have self-interest as sort of the dog-eat-dog, -dog, what you were describing, the Schopenhauer slaughter of greed <laughs> thing, whereas if you really want to survive, um, uh, recently, uh, Robert, um, oh, what is his name, Wilson, Oh, the ant guy. E.O. E. E. Wilson. E.O. Wilson. E. Wilson. Thank you. Yeah. He's recently, you know, found out that, you know, communities of, of uh, creatures, um, it works if you're altruistic, and it doesn't necessarily work for your progeny. It just generally works. And that is a stunning thing, you know. So it, it isn't passed on straight down through your genes. It's just generally, like, if you are an altruistic species, you will do better. Um, and so I find, you know, that I'm interested in how to make that a central metaphor of our lives rather than an aberrant one, where, you know, because right now we assume that, you know, it's the killer shark thing that we're well, supposed to do. And we're always told stories must have conflict. But how do you define conflict, you know? Uh, we, we tend to, in our popular culture, too often want to define com conflict as, well, you beat up on the hero so much and brutalize his family so much that, when he, usually he, finally strikes back, nobody gives a damn. It's great. It's, it was destined. It's that right? buzz cut colonel. Yeah, it's the buzz cut colonel. <laughs> you know, okay. we could like, oh, kill him. Yeah, and but in this case, we're, you, our hero is allowed to kill everybody because our hero has suffered. Okay. Yeah. And that, that uh, it's a, such a popular trope, but I don't think it, it's ultimately a good idea. I, part of the problem, I was, I, when, I, when Andrew was speaking, I was thinking about this, is that a lot of our problem, we're supposed to be foresighted creatures. We're supposed to be able to think ahead. Why don't we? Okay, why don't we? I think we? ahead. <laughs> you think to lunch tomorrow? <laughs> right, well, but the whole, but there are cultures that do think ahead, like seventh generation. Yeah, so, like, yeah. why, you know, the, the idea that you think about the consequences of your actions longer, longer term. than, long term, that you think about your children and your children's children and your, you know, that, that kind of deep thinking is a different, you know, it's not something we are asked to do, right, in our particular yeah. culture right now. If we were asked to do it, if it was a common thing, we would. It's not like we're, we're incapable of it. We can do it. We're just not asked to do it, you know. Well, I, we have, I think we have, and this I will offend this. some and, folks. And I'm a huge fan of E.O. Wilson, too. Yeah, yeah. you know. Sociobiology. Yeah. This, this, uh, this is really deep. And it's like Keynes, you know, he asked the capitalist, well, you know, what's going to happen in two or three generations you do this is, Oh, we'll be dead. We don't give a shit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what, do we care? what about your grandchildren? You don't care about them either. No, well, I, 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 not. We, they should take care of themselves. I, That's I do a have, I scary do thought. Yeah, I do have some Where trouble with with this idea that there's a that selfishness is a virtue. There's actually a book called The Virtue of Selfishness. Oh some of you may know Lord. it. Uh, and I mm. and there's this sort of assumption that capitalism has always existed, mm -hmm. but it hasn't. It's a yeah. very recent phenomenon, and yeah. I, 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 the species will probably not end with that particular mode of social organization. Yeah. Uh, but it's a sacred one right now, well, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. To, you know, because obviously the communists have failed. Yeah. I don't know what they do with the Chinese, but whatever. <laughs> you know, so, it, you know, and we are capitalism, so, okay. All right, you know? well, Rick is not going to play this on the radio because in case we get a point of the Supreme Court, <laughs> you know, You're at the questions, Ms. Sotomayor. I hate to do it. We could go on and on, but we should probably close it out. Thank I'm you almost all. out of chewing tobacco. Yeah. Um, <laughs> hey, listen, this was, uh, it's nice to have 
uh, people who know what they're talking about and a great artist for set. So thank you. Thank you. Cool. Thank you. And thank Pam you. also. Pam. Yes. Yes. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.